Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The Raptor demonstration. You go to any air show and you want the Raptor demo is amazing. It is a truly, uh, it defies physics seemingly, turns into a helicopter, turns into a UFO. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Uh, today, we have Scar, who uh, flew the Raptor, and now he's at Blue Force Technologies. But before we get to that, because I always forget the admin, uh, so I want to do it now. Uh, if anybody knows or has ever sat in a brief of mine, uh, they know my admin is trash. Uh, so we'll get it out of the way. Um, but thank you, everybody who listens to the show. I really do appreciate it. Uh, things that we would like, uh, if we can, request these things. Uh, five-star review. Apparently, that's 
that's an important thing on podcasts. Uh, I never ask for it, uh, but if you are interested and you think we deserve it, uh, or even if you don't, uh, please give us a five-star rating uh, for the Kodiak Shack podcast. Uh, and then uh, we also appreciate the fact that uh, some of our listeners has, have actually been uh, providing some feedback, uh, not only to our email, but on YouTube and different uh, platforms. So if, please send in your uh, questions, comments, concerns, uh, because we are actually going to talk about some of the topics that our listeners have brought up in the past. Uh, so thank you for those listeners who have brought that up. So uh, admin out of the way, I probably forgot some stuff. We're, you know, we're, we're a work in progress. Uh, but Scar, um, well, before I let him talk, he's an academy grad. He knows my boy Tron that we talk about a lot on the podcast. That's Lewis Bloom. And, uh, and he flew the Raptor and then he, uh, and then he ended up, uh, working at Blue Force. So we'll talk about his, uh, transition there, some of the Raptor stuff. Uh, so Scar, thank you for being here and tell us about yourself. It's not a trap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Vader. Yeah. Andrew, Vader, go by Scar. Uh, I'm, you know, we're recording this from the great state of Michigan where I've got a foot and a half of snow, fresh powder out in my backyard, which is awesome. Uh, <clears throat> you know, grew up here, like you said, went to the academy. I was fortunate enough, you know, blessed with with Raptors straight out of pilot training. You know, flew that flew those for my entire career. Uh, you know, we can get into my transition story, you know, out of the military as desired, but ended up leaving the military right as COVID hit in the summer 2020, which was hair raising and uh, uh, freaked me out, you know, quite a bit. But you know, we got through it. Uh, landed with a pretty awesome job first out of the gate, uh, working for the Advanced Battle Management System Program, then moved over to the Rapid Capabilities Office. Uh, all the while, while I was, you know, permanently DNF going through my, my uh, medical stuff, uh, was, was sitting on staff, moonlighting a little bit at ACC Air Combat Command at Langley Air Force Base, uh, which, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, is the major command, the major organization within the Air Force that governs uh, the combat air forces, so air, um, so fighters, uh, personnel rescue, handful of other cats and dogs, cyber, um, and, and, uh, you know, ran, got into a meeting where I was with this little company called Blue Force Technologies that had this crazy idea about, uh, an unmanned fighter. And you, you, once you, you know, innovation or like cool products, things that you know, make a difference, you can't unsee it once you see it. And so I kept in touch with those guys uh, throughout, you know, my entire, you know, story. And then when the opportunity presented itself to jump on full time with them, I couldn't, I couldn't not. And so I've been working with, with Blue Force for full time for actually just over a year now, just across the year mark. My title is the vice president of the air dominance division. Uh, what that means, uh, that makes two of us because I also don't know, but we're, <laughs> we're, we're trying to do good things for America uh, helping out the bros, and that's the motivation I have that gets me up every morning, truly, because I, I miss the fellas, uh, I miss the team. It's amazing, you know, what, what combat aviation and that camaraderie, you know, the family, you know, is awesome. So anything that, you know, we can do to support that truly, that's not, you know, BS, mean it. And so that's where we're, what we're up to. Nice. And uh, I'm a sea model guy now, so I like air dominance too. So I, I dig. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> so, um, well, it's great. So I think we have a great opportunity to kind of uh, dig into some topics 
that we've kind of been asked about by some of our listeners. So, uh, so obviously I flew the F-16 and now I'm currently flying the F-15C, uh, which the C and the E, the C, the F-15C model and the Strike Eagle, the E model, uh, do have differences in their flight controls. And then the Raptor, uh, is almost like the best of both worlds. So we'll kind of get into that. Scar, I'll let you talk. Uh, I am uh, mildly smart on the F-16, woefully unprepared to talk about the C model. So hopefully you can uh, you can bring it all home. But uh, so yeah. those who have not who are who are not insane aviation enthusiasts, the F-16 uh, is referred to as a fly-by-wire jet. So what that means is there are no controls like any normal. Um, general aviation, think like a Cessna, um, that actually connect the inputs you make to the actual controls, control services. So you'll have things like ailerons and flaps, and uh, you'll have your elevators and your rudder, which is normally how most airplanes fly. Most fighters don't use elevators. They have their horizontal uh, stabilizer is kind of embedded and fully mobile to create the most uh, uh, nose uh, rate or nose track or just maneuverability of the aircraft. So the F-16, the C model, and the Raptor all share that same thing. Uh, The difference about the F-16 is it has leading edge flaps and trailing edge flaps to change the shape of the wing, depending if you're really fast, those flaps come up. If you're really slow, those slaps come out. So your wing kind of uh, gains a, I believe it's camber, um, through those flight envelopes. Where the C model is a solid wing. So what that means, it has ailerons and flaps, but it doesn't really use the flaps in flight other than for takeoff. And the wing doesn't change shape, unlike the F-16. Um, so these are kind of the two differences. And the C model, it actually, if I pull back on the control stick, it actually, using hydraulic assistance, uh, will move the control surfaces. So the big difference is uh, if I pull back in the F-16, and this is similar uh, in my understanding to the Raptor, the jet, or there's a computer that says, hey, he wants this, and then it will use whatever control surface it deems necessary to get that nose track. So people, uh, so Scar, some background here, is uh, people are like, hey, you it seems like you're not overly excited about the C model. And it's not that I'm not excited about the C model. It's that <laughs> the, the F-16 uh, uses a computer to save you from yourself, not specifically from overging the jet or overging yourself, which both are possible in the F-16. Uh, but when you pull back, the jet will say, hey, I'm going to use my, instead of just ailerons or just stabs or just flaps or just rudder, it's going to use whatever the computer deems necessary to get you the performance. And if there's any sort of like adverse yaw or any sort of uh, aircraft specific, I guess, uh, deviation or, or, or problem, the jet will overcome that on its own. So now jump into the C model. The C model does not stop you. If you pull back to the CPAN-1, you, you could literally rip the wings off the aircraft, and sadly it's yeah. happened in the past. Uh, but in addition to that, um, you can over-G it, and then you can also ask too much, where now you break science here that I'm not prepared to talk about, laminar flow <laughs> over the wing, which means effectively creating that lift. So if you ask too much in the C model, the jet's not going to stop you. It's just going to stop flying, and you're effectively what's called in the heavy wing rock, and it kind of flops around. It's not really turning. It's not really flying. It's just kind of like falling in the sky. Uh, so those are those are the things that make it difficult because the jet doesn't help me in the C model. Uh, so those are the difference between the two. That's why BFM and the C model is is very different than the F-16 and not what I'm used to. So now I've explained the 
C model, which is like a more traditional or like a legacy type uh, flight control system, and then the F-16, which is kind of the basis for what everything else was built on. So, Scar, go ahead and hit him with how the Raptor is the same and different. We here at the Kodiak Shack Podcast would like to welcome our new sponsor, Adamus Cyber. Working with the military means there are some minimum cybersecurity requirements that are in every contract. Complying with these requirements can be painfully slow and really take your company's focus off your military customers and end users. Thankfully, the team at Adamus has simplified the process exclusively for small businesses working with the military. It should be expected that security requirements are going to be a part of working with the military, but they don't have to be difficult. Learn why prior guests on the podcast like Arun from OpsLab or Brian from Rescon use Atomist to comply with the NIST 800-171, DFARS 7012, and CMMC cybersecurity requirements in their contracts. Check out their website at www.atomuscyber.com. And tell them you heard about them from the Kodiak Shack podcast. Their website will be in the show notes. We appreciate all the companies that want to work with the military. And we understand working with the government isn't always the easiest thing. Uh, but we appreciate companies like Atomus that make it just a little bit easier. No, it's, it is much more aligned with the F-16 than it is the C model or E model Eagle. And so let's, let's talk about some cockpit, cockpit ergonomics first. So in the Viper, just as the same as the Raptor, same as the F-35, different from the Eagle is the stick is on the side. That is uh, versus the Eagle, you got the center stick. I believe the Hornet, Super Hornet, are center stick. Um, as we as we move up into fifth gen, you know, and beyond aircraft, I think side stick is probably going to end up being the norm. And the reason is because it is a digital fly-by-wire system. So we have three Flickus channels. Uh, in so triple redundancy within the Raptor, when you pull aft on the stick, exactly like you described, Vader, when you pull aft on the stick, you are giving a request for nose translation in that direction. What flight control surface is used is transparent to you as the as the operator. So if you are flying, like you said, a, a Cessna 172 and you pull aft on the yoke, you expect the elevator itself to transit translate which would then cause the nose to go up or down versus in the raptor say you watch the um the raptor demonstration you go to any air show and you want the raptor demo is amazing it is a truly uh, it defies physics seemingly turns into a helicopter turns into a ufo like turns into a screaming machine uh it turns into a vapor generation machine you know suddenly, <laughs> suddenly like cotton over the shoulders it's awesome but if you see the nose translating across the horizon. So say you roll, put your lip vector on the horizon, pull aft on the stick. It may not be the elevators or the, I'll say the stabs, just like you said, at all that move. It can actually be a combination of leading edge slats and the trilling edge flaps that cause that nose translation, which again is, is completely different than uh, a normal aircraft, but the flight control laws are optimized for the, for the max performance of this particular air vehicle. And so as you, look and create that request via the side stick motion, um, the flight control laws will give you the optimal solution using whatever combination of flight control services uh, will give you that best motion. And so that also is very, it, it also then uh, you have to, you have to pay very close attention to like airframe buffet when you want to have 
good communication with the nonverbals of the jet. And so you, you and I understand and other people who have flown or say like, if you, you feel smooth jet, you know, you've got some energy on the plane. When you start to feel buffet in the jet, or if you say fly a Cessna 172 or whatnot, a perfect, uh, one of the early indications of a stall starting to form is actually this, this, the yoke or the stick starting to shake. Well, because there is no physical connection between the stick and the Raptor to those flexible surfaces, you really do need to pay attention to the airframe buffet more than what's going on necessarily at the stick, because that is going to tell you, you know, a little bit about your energy state more than the control stick would. So that's a, yeah, so it's a digital fly-by-wire jet. It is, it is also way smarter than I would ever be. Just it, so it, uh, it's more than happy to save you. Uh, or, or also you can, like you said, find yourself, uh, on the pain train at 600 bills, you know, low altitude and pulling straight back on the stick and you'll be accelerating at nine G's, uh, which is not a crowd favorite. Uh, it is, <laughs> it is, uh, something you, have, you know, want to avoid, uh, but the Raptors more than happy to give you all the power in the G that you would like. Yeah. And I think the, the amazing thing about the Raptor. So the Raptor and the F-16 share similarities, similarities between a digital flight control system. But then the Raptor has a, has two things that the F-16 does not. One of them is the ability to increase the pull or continue the pull um, and then actually keep pulling more AOA. So angle of attack is your nose to the relative wind. And the disparity or the delta between those two things is your angle of attack. What that means is the F-16, you get the amount of AOA the jet allows and no more. Where the Raptor says, hey, if you want more, I'm getting slow. I'll let your nose keep going relative to the relative wind. And in addition, it has thrust vectoring, which probably helps with that. So any, uh, any add-ons to that part? Yeah, so it is uh, in the Raptor, you can get to nearly any AOA uh, that you desire. Uh, and so I'll, I'll point out to you know the audience, the Raptor demo again. There's a really good example using the pedal turn. So one of the maneuvers is the, the pilot will take the aircraft straight up and then pull aft on the stick in order to create that stalled condition. But then you'll still see the nose translating left and right. Like it's almost like a helicopter, but it's moving left and right that aircraft is probably at greater than 60 degrees alpha at that point, but still fully controlled through a combination of the control services, the, the, the engines. Um, it is still a, a fully in control aircraft. We call those maneuvers post-stall maneuvers where you are in a stalled condition, but still controllable. And so there's a, there are a whole host of uh, post-stall maneuvers that you may want to do in tactical situations. Uh, very, uh, short time specific use case because as people who understand um, aerodynamics know we're going to install condition you're also losing a lot of energy and you know a key axiom uh, for uh, tactical maneuvering is energy you need to get energy back as soon as you possibly can you know i would say energy is life and so if you can maintain the energy use it as, as specific times which the raptor is more than happy to bleed that energy for you uh be those you know high alpha post-all maneuvers but then it will also you know make you feel much better when you put both you know f-119 pratt and whitney engines over the hump and it's giving you seventy thousand pounds out the back of thrust in ab uh you, you can you can save your you know it made me look like a way better pilot than I ever was because it, it will get you out of the situations that your poor pilotage puts you into 
Yeah, and I think that is that is a similarity with the F-16 is it doesn't have thrust vectoring. It doesn't have post-all. It has a single rudder. So if you look at F-15, F-18, F-22, F-35, all of them have two rudders um, in a varying angles and setups. Uh, but what that allows for is to use the rudders to, to turn the nose across the sky when the airplane may not have the airspeed to do that via just g and using the stabs to do that uh so the f-16 you can you can ask a lot out of it you can get yourself behind it but the jet rather than just stop flying it'll like okay i'm gonna give you some nose track it's gonna be slow but at least you'll get something where in a c model if you ask too much it'll just stop you'll you'll think you're turning but you're really just going straight and the wings are just kind of rocking back and forth uh as you kind of just you know trundle along through the sky thinking you're doing BFM. And, uh, and I think one other thing is, uh, you know, in, in pilot training in T6s and T38s, they tell you to fly the T. And what that means is with any sort of like F-15, you have a full flight control stick that will move. So in an F-16, if you let it, the, I think the displacement is like a quarter of an inch or something like that. Uh, but it's all about force that you're applying. So you don't really have to fly the T because again, the flight control system is kind of going to do it for you. We're in the C model. If I don't get back to a neutral stick position before I apply aileron, which means I'm not asking for nose track. I'm just asking for roll. Then I'm not going to get a great roll because it's going to be a loaded roll rather than unloaded, which I assume the Raptor kind of helps out with that as well. Yeah, you can, you can absolutely, um, there are times where you would want to execute a loaded roll, so a combination of, of a stick and pedal, uh, so rudder pedal, in order to can command under alpha a roll. But there are also times where you want to, just like you said, uh, go at, at a minimum to the center, if not push forward slightly to break that stall to get some more air over the wings and just snap it a little bit quicker. And so there, there are, are various reasons why you may want to do both. And actually, to, to pile on to something that you said about the um, about continuing to pull, and you may feel like you're doing some good, but really you're just hurting yourself, is, you know, you can find yourself at slow speed conditions at our, you know, tactical floor. So call it like a like a 10,000 foot, you know, tactical floor for the engagement, uh, you know, when you're going out and doing some BFM, and you could be hanging out at like 10.5, and you're at min sustained turn rate in the Raptor, um, and when you, you can pull back of the stick and you 100% will get your nose to move a little bit and you'll go underneath min sustained turn rate. And when you actually look at your ground track, it's straight because all you're doing is you're turning your nose, but you're not actually translating across the sky, which is you and I both know if you want to get out of the way of the impending lead headed your way, you actually have to move your jet and not just flop around. Uh, yeah. and so that, uh, that is incredibly important is to maintain awareness on your min sustained turn rate airspeed so you can maintain that translation across the ground for survivability purposes. Yeah, I flew the uh, F-35 sim and um, and it was able kind of, you know, I've never flown the Raptor or the sim, uh, but kind of that nose track, like just kind of slice across the horizon. And, you know, so you kind of pull back and then you just step on a rudder and it's like dial a heading. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, man, you know, the F-16, because when you're under a lot of AOA or a lot of AOA for the F-16, um, the rudder doesn't really do much because the fuselage of the plane is kind of blanking out your rudder. So I was like, all sure. right, I'm talking to these test pilots. And I was like, I have a theory. And I was like, what I'm going to do is get really slow and I'm going to bunt and like unload all of that alpha and then stomp on the rudder. 
and what do you think is going to happen? And they were like, probably nothing. And I was like, I think I'm going to try it. So sure enough, I go out and I'm slow. I'm like 130 knots, which is, which is pretty slow for an F-16. And I'm, all, I'm pegged on the limiter, so I'm pulling the maximum amount of AOA the jet will give me. And I unload and I stomp on the rudder and the nose tracks like 20 degrees left. And then I just fly uncoordinated flight on the same vector I had, just the nose is not pointing. And then I, I let the rudder out and the nose just kind of like wobbles back and forth and then goes back to my original heading. And I was like, well, that was anticlimactic. Like I didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're, like, you're like, I have got an idea that nobody, nobody's thought of before. All, everybody else in the squadron, they're not ready for this. And, That's right. and then um, unfortunately, it, uh, oh, dude, we've all been there. We've yeah, all been buckle there. Buckle up, everybody. Vader's generating <laughs> tactics again. Yeah, yeah so. that's right. <laughs> that's right. Somebody let the jet let me take a jet out by myself, and I've come back with ideas and also a lot of sweat on my brow from being yeah. scared. <laughs> yeah, you fools. You never even tried this before. <laughs> Turns out it doesn't work. So Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> well, that's, that's awesome. And I think one of the things is that a lot of fourth-gen fighters always look to fifth-gen fighters and we're like, they are clean every day, you know? So fourth gen fighters, we just slap everything on the outside. We slap missiles, we slap bombs, we slap pods, we slap everything. And then Raptors go out there and it's like demo clean every day of its life, which is, I guess it does have, have gas tanks, but not usually. So I, I imagine that was, that was a very slick plane that uh, probably didn't want to slow down when she got quick. No, she doesn't want to slow down. And it, uh, and, and so you you can get fast very quickly and stay fast for a long time, you know, and, and when you pull the throttle back, and actually what's, you know, interesting for people who, who may or may not know, the Raptor does not have a dedicated speed brake or air brake. So if you want to use a, uh, what we would call the, the speed brake, you pull aft on that switch on the HOTAS, and then what it actually does, is it just cants the control surfaces outward in order to create additional drag. And so there's no, you know, barn door that comes up behind you or anything like that. There's no dedicated service whose sole position or purpose in life is to be your speed brake. That's not what we have. Um, and really because the, the name of the game with, with fifth gen and anything that, want, you know, aspires to be stealthy is to maintain, um, yeah, that cleanness of your aircraft. Because everything is hanging, every missile that's hanging, every bomb that's hanging, every empty pylon that's hanging every fastener that's not quite tight tight you know in and is sticking out every little thing adds up to bloom your radar cross-section whether it be a lot or a little but it can all add up and you want to maintain awareness of your for your survivability in a fifth generation fighter you want to maintain awareness of your radar cross-section and so um yeah, you, you want to maintain a clean aircraft. So that's why in the Raptor, we carry our weapons internally. So in the side of the aircraft, you have you have uh, the ability to carry two heat-seeking missiles, principally AIM-9Xs, if at all possible. Uh, I started with the AIM-9 Mike, the Mighty Mighty Mike, and then transitioned you know, to the AIM-9X, uh, and then there are a couple blocks and upgrades associated with that weapon. So one on each side. And then inside the, the main weapons bay, if we're going as, as God intended the Raptor to go full air-to-air -air mode, then you're going to have six AMRAMs in there and then two heat-seeking missiles on either side of this in the side weapons bay. So eight wep eight missiles total. If we want to go, uh, if we want to go pretend to do air-to-ground well, then we will trade out two AMRAMs for one 1,000-pound bomb or one rack of uh, SDBs. 
which are 250 pound GPS guided, uh, essentially low gliders, explosive gliders. Um, and I know you probably know way more about the SDB. So go ahead and just tell me how cute I am that I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but we can then, if we want to go full up air to ground, we can get uh, two AIM-9s, so two heat seekers, two AMRAMs, and then eight uh, SDBs. It's two racks of four. Um, that was the configuration we went in quite a bit in um, Operation uh, or OIR against ISIS. We are doing some of that. Uh, I dropped some... Uh, some bombs on, you know, in the Middle East during that time. Um, but again, the, the aircraft, you know, it, just to keep talking a little bit about the history of the aircraft, it came out of the Advanced Tactical Fighter Program. So there was that famous fly-off between the, the YF-22 and the YF-23. Uh, you know, both Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman competing. You can find all, all sorts of documentaries and history about those aircraft. Each, each of them, YF-22 and the YF-23, had significant strengths and weaknesses ultimately the yf-22 was chosen which turned into the the raptor uh 186 of them built out of what was supposed to be over a 700 you know aircraft buy um you know tough choices have to be made you know as we think about budgets and what we're trying to achieve and so under uh when secretary of defense gates was the SecDef in the mid to late 2000s under bush and then obama we were having some major you know, this is just about the trades, right? So just talk a little bit less about the Raptor, a little bit about like what impacts these fighters that we care about. Um, there were unfortunately a whole bunch of really good people uh, suffering really bad injuries uh, or being killed by IEDs in the Middle East. If you think about back in like 2000, the mid to late 2000s in the, into the 20 teens, you know, we still had a significant pr presence in Iraq significant presence in Afghanistan and the, you know, the favored way to injure Americans was with IEDs. So we needed to spend some money and quickly get a new vehicle better than a Humvee out there that is, that is um, survivable in that environment. And that's where the MRAP came from. Um, and so you go, okay, I've got a problem today where guys are dying and I need to support them. And I have what I hope will never be a problem tomorrow, which is that preparation for the high intensity conflict where I need a lot of stealth fighters, I am going to cancel over by over half the Raptor buy uh, to then support MRAPs. And then they got canceled some more. So it went from over 700, I believe, to the high 300s. And then it was it was canceled at uh, 180, uh, 186 is what we had got. Um, and those are broken up between early lot and then like the combat coded jets. Um, so yeah, but, you know, guys more likely than not survived because we got, you know, yesterday because we have less Raptors today, because that's the budget trade you have to make. Uh, but now we're, you know, there's no free lunch now as we pivot to high intensity conflict and prepare for what we hope will never come, you know, conflict with a peer adversary. Um, we now find ourselves short on one of the best assets in that conflict, the Raptor. And so that's where the, the F-35 will pick up, you know, some of those requirements uh, via quantity um, and its capabilities as well. So, um, yeah, a little bit of history lesson there. Yeah. I like how you said the F-35 is going to pick up the Raptor slack due to quantity, not because it's... <laughs> well, I mean, so if anybody hasn't seen the F-22 Raptor demo, I mean, even on, on the internet, but specifically live, it is... I mean, flying an F-16 and I watched the Raptor 
do what it did. And I was like, nope, that's not supposed to happen. That's not how planes fly. Uh, it is, it's, it's amazing. It is just, it, I think, I mean, I'll, I'll throw it out there. It's, it is, if not the most maneuverable, it is one of the most maneuverable fighters that has ever been built. And it's going to be hard to outperform that thing because it's, I mean, one, it's clean. It's thrust to weight ratio is solid. It's got killer motors. And I mean, it's, it, it's very, very good at what it does. Um, so yeah, you got to give credit where credit do, credit is due. And I think, yeah, it's, it's tough because I bet, and sadly our acquisitions process just takes so long because it took us so long to roll out the Raptor that the Raptor was kind of like oldish technology and same thing with the 35 now. But, you know, they were probably making that decision with the assumption that they're like, oh, the next jet will be out in like five years anyway, so it's no big deal. And the reality is these things take, you know, probably a decade longer than expected, if not more. So, so I, I, like you said, you, you have to make real time decisions and then deal with the fallout later. But yeah, that's one of those where, you know, if you're in a fighter squadron, they're like, oh, we need more jets. And, you know, most fighter pilots are like, can we just build more Raptors? Like, why not just, you know, because again, we keep, for some reason, we are, our decision making. And again, I'm not in the meetings. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not mustered to make these decisions, but you're like, we have a tested airframe that is wildly capable, like just throw a few iPhones in it and it's probably going to have better processing than anything else we could make. So yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty wild. Yeah, no, it, it is, it is fascinating, you know, the intricacies that, you know, lead into these strategic decisions that end up impacting decades after that decision was made. And, um, you know, that's, that's where I think, you know, iterative, iterative design in rapid fielding of, of future aircraft. I think maybe the, you know, um, the former um, Secretary of Air Force for Acquisition, Dr. Roper, you know, in the previous administration, he coined the term the, the Century Series. We're going to start this new Century Series of aircraft just, you, that harkens back to Vietnam, where we had uh, F-100s, 104s, 106s, 105s. Well, how did I miss that? You know, 108, we had a whole host of aircraft that rolled out reasonably, you know, back to back to back to back to back. And we want to kind of get, we want to spur the industrial base to get back to that. We actually have to do that. We have to put our our actions, you know, behind that, uh, not to get philosophical here. But anyway, the, I think that I think the the digital century series term or the, the new century series term, I think that that may be out of vogue uh, now, but the intent should the intent of that is 100% valuable, is 100% valuable. There's no reason why we need to wait another 10, 15, 20 years for the next, you know, aircraft to come out. There's no, the technology exists now. The labor force exists now. The knowledge base is there. You can get, you can get more than one MDS fighter performance every decade if we wanted to, if we truly wanted to. And so, um, Maybe we could talk about that more in, in if we so desire as we you know about the future. But I think there there is, there are opportunities for that to actually happen. And I think uh, and maybe this is a perfect segue uh, because honestly I am uh, uh, relatively uninformed about CCAs, but we're going to get into that now. So uh, Blue Force Technology is helping build uh, so combat collaborative aircraft, right? And then. Man, unmanned teaming, would that be something that CCAs are also working on? Yeah, so there is, 
um, it is it is valuable valuable to break those those two apart. Although they end up coming back together. So a combat collaborative aircraft. Uh, I think there's a, there's a there's a family of systems that's maybe better a better term to use than Century Series. You want to get after um, uh, a hand, uh, unmanned vehicles that are built uh, for purposes such as a combat collaborative aircraft. CCA uh, would be you know. I would think a, a high performance unmanned fighter type of thing. You could have like a, a CTA, which is a collaborative training aircraft, something that could facilitate training. Uh, you could have a uh, CBA, which is a collaborative bomber aircraft, maybe going with the B-21. Um, there are other, there are kind of lanes that, air, you know, air vehicles could fall in that is really just under the overall umbrella of, you know, kind of synonymously saying CCAs or, or unmanned aircraft. And then when you think about MUM-T, which is man unmanned teaming, that is the philosophy of using autonomy, automation, appropriate human machine interfaces, data links, et cetera, by which a person would give a command to that vehicle or be told what the vehicle decided to do via automation or autonomy and then uh, work as a, as a team, so man unmanned teaming, uh, work as a team to overall accomplish a goal. It you know kind of goes without saying at the end of that man on man teaming there is an unmanned aircraft and on the other side there is a person that could be on the ground or could be in an aircraft. Uh, so the mum T term is kind of divorced from the aircraft. It gets after like how do we make this happen and then the CCA gets into the actual you know the platforms and the capabilities associated with that. So how does the, so CCAs, because right now we just talked about how we have a process or problem with creating new aircraft, onboarding new aircraft, rolling them out and IOC or initial operational capability. Yeah. Capability. There we yeah. go. I was just going to say yeah. C, but uh, C. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, um, so with blue force technologies, like what are they, what are they like? What is the current problem set that they are trying to build the solution for? Yeah, so we're gonna back this up to uh, like 2017. So a little quick background, Blue Force Technologies, based on Raleigh, North Carolina, a business that's 12 years old, growing year over year, and principally working in carbon composites for aerospace and space uh, purposes. So we have we have uh, traditional prime uh, airspace customers, and we also have been doing composite development work for space customers as well. And in and around that time, the 2017 timeframe decided, hey, you know, it's awesome doing work for others, but let's start making our own stuff to put our own sticker on. I think there's a there's a need here for a high performance unmanned vehicle. Let's start shopping that idea around. And so company the company made the pivot, which is, you know, as companies do in a in a direction, um, actually wrote an open topic SBIR phase one. So got you know got fifty thousand dollar three month period performance took that time in order to go door knock every single day at Air Combat Command and that's actually when I ran into them was when they were getting feedback from operators which is exactly what you're supposed to do under Silver Phase One anybody who's listening wants to talk about the Silver process hit hit me up we can talk about that later but got a Silver Phase One turn that into a Silver Phase Two you know one point seven five million dollar uh, uh, over a year period performance in order to develop to a preliminary design review the air, the air vehicle. And it got turned into it got turned into um, the aircraft we now are calling Fury, but it is a high performance unmanned RCS managed fighter. And we've been mar- we've been it has it has had 
uh, for the first couple of years here, a, a use case of adversary error. And so I would, I would commend the recent podcast that you and I were just on where we talk about adversary error. We can rehash some of that uh, for the listeners, but um, uh, because there's so much we don't know about how to work together with a high-performance, unmanned, low-observable fighter, because nobody's ever done it before, we, we should probably start in the highly regulated environment of training. That has been the, that has been the thesis. But ultimately, I also don't want the air vehicle to be binned unfortunately like un, un, unnecessarily binned with only that mission set because as you and I can understand in those you know who, who, who think about this there are a whole handful of missions you can do with a high performance low observable unmanned fighter like yeah. offensive counter air like defensive counter air like seed like a whole, you could, there's a whole host of things that the air vehicle could do when it is not in combat it is going to be reasonably good at adversary air when it is needed to go to combat, which we hopefully will be never, then it will be part of the kill web in order to, you know, sense in, you know, sense and act against an adversary. Um, and so that's what our, what, you know, Fury is doing. So, uh, you know, to paint a mental picture of what it looks like, it's just a little bit smaller than T-38, uh, single engine, um, 28 feet long, 17 foot, you know, wingspan, um, Goes out, it goes up to 0.95 Mach, 50,000 foot. Uh, we've got a simulator model flying. It's awesome. It's a blast to fly. Um, it'll be controlled from a ground control station like a UAS. And so um, we're really excited about it. We, again, it is, we've been talking a lot to, you know, Air Combat Command in the bros, right? We go, hey guys, you need better quality and quantity of adversary air. Your sparring partner, your practice squad that you go against every day is probably. It, they're great people doing, they're great Americans doing great American things uh, to try and sharpen the sword, but we don't have the quality and quantity. How about we give you a, a reasonably priced, easily produced with commercial components, high performance, low observable unmanned fighter to train against? Okay, everybody understands that naturally. We need a better sparring partner in both quantity and quantity, quality and quantity. And then let's take that forward when the balloon goes up too. And so it really is a Swiss army knife of an airplane when it comes to any mission set that you would want to use a fighter for, that's where our aircraft could work too. Well, and, and one of the things kind of gives some more background, you know, when you're building an airplane, there is a lot of weight and space and effort spent on keeping a human in, alive in that airplane, letting them get oh, out of that airplane. And then in addition, like interfacing with the airplane. So now we're talking, none of those things are required. We don't need all the electrical that the pilot has to interface with. We don't have to steal generator power and output to run the environmental control system and all that stuff. That's all gone. Now it's just yeah. like, I just need a plane to do the job and then I'll work with it from, from a distance. And, uh, how does it work with a higher performance platform with like uh, any sort of latency and in, in like transfer and all that kind of stuff? Cause I, I don't know, but my understanding is there's, there is some latency obviously when you're like around the world. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And so this, I'll, I'll talk about the design choice freedom and then we'll talk about the latency. So it's similar to like when, when you remove the internal combustion engine out of a car and you go with like a, a skateboard electric, you know, vehicle, then you, the whole world is open up to, um, to automotive designers to do different things with the front of that vehicle for drag reduction, uh, storage, um, you know, crazy lights or whatever the heck they want to do. Now, when you don't have, you know, a big hunk of lead up there or steel, then you can do anything you want 
to make that vehicle different or optimized for what you want to do. When you remove an operator from inside the aircraft, you can make different design choices because you don't have to make a tub for a dude or dudette to sit in. You don't have to, you know, make those displays and you don't have to keep that person hot or cold because gosh darn it, I'm picky when I fly. And yeah. so you don't have to, you don't have to do any of that. And so you can make some design choices and move things around in different ways and offer the opportunity for the, for, uh, aeronautical engineers to be creative to optimize the air vehicle. Now getting into, um, for the mission sets that are in question, I should uh, close that thought out with that. So when it comes to the data links, there are, there are two principal ways you can control UAS. There's the, the beyond line of sight, which is uh, BLOS, principally through SATCOM. So you think about like an MQ-9, you know, where guys are sitting at Creech Air Force Base, and they're controlling things in Afghanistan, they're using, uh, you know, satellite relays in order to bounce that, that communication. And there is, there is uh, some latency, but not, you know, enough to impact the mission. You know, we can still successfully get the mission done. If you go with a line of sight radio, one that um, the transmitter on the ground or transmitter on a aircraft or wherever the transmitter is, it goes straight to the receiver. You actually minimize the latency you know, as much as the speed of light. And so um, that is, uh, so a combination of those are how you'd end up controlling the UAS. And again, depending on the mission set, there is value in the home, flying around the home drone with using line of sight. Why do I need to use latency of SATCOM and the expense of SATCOM when I can just use line of sight when I'm just flying around the flagpole at home? Uh, but then if we wanna go, you know, kick in the door somewhere, uh, we probably will be using a combination of both or, or you know, so there's, there are some trades. And again, the, the best option has to be bumped up against what the mission set you're trying to do. So as you and I, like, let's work from the target backward. What are we actually trying to accomplish? Then let's build it back. Let's build the air vehicle around whatever that is trying to accomplish. One, one of the things that I've talked with a couple companies previously, you know, like a Cibber 2, a Cibber 2, the entire, the end state a successful Cibber 2 ends in a min viable product. It does not end in the best. It doesn't end in a Raptor. Like that is not what a Cibber 2 will produce you. And the problem is you get this like, um, I don't know if this is exactly the term, but like objective creep or, you know, like you, you every time you're like, well, could it, could it do this or could it do that? And, and now all of a sudden you're asking something to, to do a lot more than it was initially supposed to. Or then you're like, well, I wanted this to be cheap. And now it's super expensive. And it's like, well, because you asked for all the expensive stuff. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, you shouldn't have wanted Napa leather, you know? Like, there's, yeah. there's at some point, like, we have to, like you said, like, what is our objective and how do we best achieve it? Uh, rather than just trying to put all the bells and whistles on something that may or may not need them all. Right. And I would just say, too, with the, we're, we're really living in a, in a really amazing confluence of advanced manufacturing techniques uh, high power compute and small form factors and, you know, automation trans transitioning to true autonomy where iterative design is the way to go. You know, let's, let's think about the F-16, for example, the F-16 was designed to be a daytime VFR, but like put fear in the hearts of our enemies because it is going to crush you in the air to air. And then suddenly it's supplying with you know, lightning lantern pods, hanging bombs and rockets off the side. And now it's like, you know, it's, it tr turns into a multi-role something, um, which has value, but 
you now as you start putting bumps and humps and other things all of the all of the aircraft it becomes less optimized for what it was intended to do and when we think about future uas designs there are those and i'd be, I'd be happy to to be corrected i'd be happy to get feedback from anybody but i perceive based on again advanced manufacturing and small compute and open architectures that can be extended to other air vehicles there is no reason why a cca should be multi-role there's no reason this is this is we're now this is scars theory we're, we're planting the flag but again I'm, I'm open for debrief to be told that i'm dumb and i'll learn i mean i'd love to learn but here's what i think should happen the xq58 the xq58 built by kratos it's a rocket launched um you know moderate moderately fighter size t38 ish single engine inlet on top aircraft been flying since 2018 uh under a lab project uh, did work with Skyborg or whatnot. The XQ-58 has a role as an expeditionary air vehicle, forward, runway independent, take, you know, launch it, enter into the sensing grid, maybe drop some weapons, maybe not, but really sense and provide information to the grid and then come back. It has a role. When you don't need runway independence, don't use it. <laughs> but when you need it, use it. And but, but because autonomy doesn't have a muscle that atrophies, Keep it in the crate until you need it, but you have it, have it ready. You know, the, let's talk about the, the MQ-9 or the MQ-20. They're great aircraft for what they're designed to be used for. Don't bolt on additional stuff to make them less optimized for what they're used for. Use them when you need them and don't when you don't. Not everybody has to have a trophy here. If the war doesn't require you, stay home. Red flag should learn that lesson. So then you go, <laughs> um, uh, so you go like the ghost bat from Boeing, you know, recently flown down in Australia, pretty awesome airplane built by Boeing Australia. Um, it has a role. When you don't need it, don't use it. Keep it on the ground in the hangar, but when it is, when the mission set requires its optimized performance, use it. Same thing with Fury. Again, the whole point here is that we need to have a family of capabilities of aircraft that have architectures of the same, using autonomy command command messages that are universal so that when you take off your C model and you hand it off to a P8, you're speaking the same language. And, 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 it, and it is for a purpose. And when you don't have that purpose, you don't use that thing. You know, I just think about a, um, a multi-tool. You know, a multi-tool has, you know, a fingernail file and pliers and a Phillips screwdriver and all this sort of, and, and it becomes bloated and it is, not your best pliers. It's not your best fingernail fingernail fly, file. It's not your best Phillips head screwdriver. But it's okay at all of those things. Yeah. And I would say that we, when it comes to the future iterations of unmanned vehicles, we should not make air vehicles that are okay at all of the things. We should make air vehicles that are amazing at the few things that they're designed for, and crap at the rest. And that is okay. And that's okay. It has to be okay. And I think that's. I mean, that's the whole point of them. Is like let's make them relatively cheap, modular in nature, and then have very specific attributes to be able to do very specific things. Uh, because I think, and this is this is not a spear to the Raptor community, because I think, especially at the time, there was a very useful role for the Raptor doing like deep strikes or, you know, like Sam takedowns. But it's like, hey, we have the most advanced like maneuverable fighter on the planet dropping SDB. And it's like, you know, we have a lot of jets that can drop SDB. Now, granted, dropping SDB on some heinous new Sam. Yeah, I'll let the Raptor do that. But, you know, it was like <laughs> stuff like that. So I, I agree. Like, let's have, you know, coming from an F-16 guy who is, that's like 
the whole, the whole pitch. It's like, it's become the Jack of all trades, master of none. And it's, and you know, you go to a C model squadron and they're like, yeah, well, you know, you, you did F 16 TI, you know, you didn't do a true TI and they <laughs> haven't right. really, yeah, they haven't actually said that, but I kind of like, Hey, you know, I, I haven't done C model TI, you know, I just did TI where you had like three or four other mission sets going, you know, so you never really got into the weeds. So I agree. Cause I think, Maybe it's maybe it's easier to sell, or people like to be able to say, "Oh no, no, no! This doesn't just you know, this doesn't just uh, slice. This dices and it does everything else," because <laughs> it's easier to get people to write checks for that stuff. So, but as a as a tech tactician on the tactical side of things, like I want I want something to be eye watering at its job, and then build something else to be eye watering at its job, like you said. And so I I couldn't agree more. So if you got problem with Scar, then you got problem with me too. <laughs> there we go yeah i just think yeah. it's is when it because of the yeah it there is we live in a really special time when it comes to making things that have reasonable performance at reasonable prices mm-hmm. um and it, and it will not you know all of those things will not be the the platinum you know gold plated solution you're gonna leave some performance on the table but again that has to be okay because um, and then what you also do when you create a family of systems with optimized capabilities with, uh, again, specific mission sets, um, you continue to keep the industrial base active because if you give a performer, a multi-role fighter for multi-decade, then it is only those people who play versus if you democratize the production of these CCAs across a, a family of providers to create that family of systems all, all you got to do is just do that. And then you've satisfied what, you know, uh, at the OSD level, Heidi Shu and others have said, they, they, they decry, oh my gosh, we need to keep the industrial base active. What are we going to do to keep the industrial base active? Here's an example. Democratize a family of systems of un, 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 uh, unmanned aircraft, whether it be fighter performance, bomber performance, ISR performance. I, I, I don't care. You have, to, you have to democratize out to a family of systems. So how is uh, kind of focusing on the blue force side of this? So obviously you said they were um, they were not surfaces, but what were the uh, what were they building initially? Yeah, so blue force was building or has you know has a its core business is building composite aerostructure for other customers, ranging from like I said, um, EV tall space, airspace, aerospace, um, yeah, a whole host of customers, which is awesome. Uh, yeah. So how is that now, and and kind of help expand on this, like engines, software, you know, all the other stuff beyond the the composites. Like, how how are they building that? Where who you know are they working with other companies, or how does that work? Yeah, so we that that also like dovetails into we want to use the people in the in the companies that are experts at what they do, and then it it we do what we are expert at. So we are expert. We can we can integrate aircraft together build the structure, build the support, you know, the spars, the skins, everything associated with the aircraft, landing gear, we put all that together. We are not an engine manufacturer. I don't want to become an engine manufacturer. There are amazing engine manufacturers out there. So I'm going to buy their engines. You know, I am not, um, I'm not a mission computer manufacturer. I don't want to build chips. I don't want to do that, but I'm going to use the people who have well vetted with millions of hours, mission computers and flight computers. I'll buy their stuff, which is probably already FAA certified. I don't have to go through that. They've already done it. I want to integrate that quickly on, on my aircraft. Um, I, you know, so then we, 
the design of the hydraulics and electrics work we do all you know we're working with that with some partners the fuel system you know we're tackling all that too but when it comes to all those piece parts again you have a supply chain and you have a, a, an industrial base who have expertise in those areas we bring that together with our design in our aircraft which we'll build we'll integrate the vehicle uh and then we'll get to uh ground and then flight test and then fielding which I think, I, I mean, obviously you guys have thought through this pretty well. But yeah, that I think that's a good approach because why try like, hey, let's try our hand at building jet engines. And then, you know, it's going to be this like massive problem rather than just being like, hey, this works. Because I think, you know, it's always about like this exquisite technology and it always seems to have to have some new like capability or this new, you know, it's like, no, 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 we can't use the old engine. We have to fabricate a brand new engine that somehow is different than every other jet engine. And you're like, okay. I mean, I guess like that you tell it, me, but yeah, that's, that's that you bring up a good point of like the approach where, you know, in, in, a, in an example, like you just described, you could have an engine manufacturer come to us and go, you know, what, what performance do you want? And actually what we do is we go to the engine manufacturer and go, what do you have? We'll wrap that in carbon. We'll build an airplane around <laughs> that, you know, because leading back into, you know, a comment I said earlier and I still live by is like speed is life. And if we want to have something out flying ASAPly, then we have to go with what's already out there. If we, if we require more developmental programs to support this aircraft getting off the ground, everything will just continue to slip on schedule and increase in cost. Or I can see what's already on a hot production line rolling off right now, squeeze every ounce of performance I can and go and, and let good be good enough. Because guess what? We're going to iterate the next design next year. We'll iterate the next design after that. And so um, it really has changed because yeah, uh, let's, think about, let's talk about the Raptor and the F-35. The Raptor Pratt Whitney F-119 engine, uh, amazing air engine. The F-35, brand spanking new engine, not used anywhere else. The Raptors engine, not used anywhere else. It just points exactly to what you're saying. These are these are bespoke power plants that are amazing. They have amazing engineering, amazing people build them. It's all great. But it was a brand new developmental program that probably, you know, did cost billions of dollars. Or we could have just used, you know, the 229. Yeah. Maybe. Well, and, I don't know. Or, yeah. You know, when it creates a ton of thrusties, I mean, like the 35 <laughs> creates more thrust than the Raptor, which is yeah. kind of insane to, to think about. But it's like, yeah, Raptor motors probably pretty darn good, you know? So yeah. Well, now we have to, we have to re-engine that 35. Uh, yeah. Seemingly. <laughs> well, and so. that's, and that's the tough part. You know, you, you have like these, there's no perfect solution. You know, the F-16, the US F-16 has four variants in motor motors that it's currently flying with. And we're like, why so many motors? But then it's like, well, the F-35 only has one and people are pissed off about that. And you're like, touche. Like, I don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> so the uh, one thing uh, kind of to give people the big picture. So obviously we've kind of explained what CCAs are. Uh, and so nine level, the future that you envision CCAs doing, like what does that fight look like? What does that training look like? Like what? how are we training with CCAs? How are we employing CCAs in combat? Yeah, so let's let's actually reestablish why do we even need CCAs in the first place. So the reason why we need CCAs is because we perceive an extreme level of risk in that hopefully never to happen high in conflict. Like it is it is extremely challenging in a kinetic and non kinetic arena, in an in a very uh, expeditionary not 
logistics challenged uh, arena if I'm thinking about like the Indo-Pacific. Indo-Pacific. And so it's an away game with not a lot of runways and not a lot of availability to get, you know, get your logistics moving. Um, and when you get into the theater and you fence in, it is freaking high threat, dude. You're getting jammed, you're getting shot with extremely long range weapons. Um, and we are challenged in that arena. They would be too, but um, we don't have enough mass and so how do you how do you darken the skies with more iron that's capable well you get after reasonably priced you know unmanned fighters hopefully i would think and so um in the future i envision um a family of systems you know there's a there is um the rq-170 is a is a is a great airplane for what it's designed for i envision you know the rq-170 or um Another, you know, call it flying Dorito. Uh, you know, those those things are in vogue with the B twenty one. There was the there was the B family of systems operational imperative from the Secretary of the Air Force uh, that was out there. I imagine there could be an unmanned bomber that's been you know said publicly as a desire. I imagine we will continue to have uh, long letter ISR, maybe for comms relay purposes, because more likely not not going to be a counterterrorism fight. So if we need something that's going to sit up there for 24 hours, it better have the ability to talk uh, and relay information. Um, I envision um, a no kidding, high performance, low observable unmanned fighter that's going to maybe not necessarily be on the wing like you're checking, you know, is he line abreast at three miles stacked high, you know, waiting for the delayed 90. I don't think that that's going to happen, but he's, but he'll be out there ready to do some fighter integration, you know, or, uh, provide that offboard sensing and also be survivable when it's shot, you know, execute that uh, last ditch maneuver to create that miss distance away from that missile. Um, you have to have fighter performance to do that. And we, because ex- that's the arena that you and I and our, our pink bodies will be in if we go. So it better be there to help me. Um, and it better have the performance to survive in the arena that I am in and that should be helping me in. And so um, I, I envision uh, yeah, the whole gamut with a with a number of vehicles in each of those bins. So combat collaboratives be unmanned fighters, combat ISR, which would be like kind of long loiter, bomber. Uh, I envision more than one vehicle in each of those bins. I would hope because then that keeps competition going. It it gives multiple different options. But the critical part here isn't really the platform. I would just say this is this is going to be strange when you hear a platformer say the unimportant part is the platform. But um, we cannot have every single one of these things have different data links because then it's not going to be able to communicate with anybody. It can't – internal to the aircraft, the messages that you send, like turn 90 right. It better be in the same format, the same language, no matter what aircraft is sending it. We don't have common languages or common OFPs in any of our fighters or, or weapon systems right now. We don't even own the OFPs. By we, I mean the government. Sorry. Yeah. By, like, America. You know, the, <laughs> the American taxpayer doesn't own the OFP in the F-35. Um, and, and so it – but we better have it speak the same language. And so um, really the – like, I would just say the air vehicle itself, like the, the carbon wrapper or aluminum wrapper or whatever the material is – really is the unimportant part. That's what the advanced manufacturing enables. That is really just an exquisite dust cover of the <laughs> mission systems, the mission systems that are inside of it, because that's where the money is made. It's actually the mission systems. So that's uh, what our philosophy is. We are an air. Uh, yeah. We want to make the airframe unimportant. How do you do that? And rapidly iterate 
make it inexpensive and move out. Yeah, well, that was one of the things I saw Elon Musk speak and what he was talking about, because somebody asked him the question about um, the like Tesla, how all of their stuff is like open source or I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but uh, but he was like, well, if you're innovating so fast that it doesn't matter, like if if people are stealing your data, they've got six month old at best data, like who cares, you know? So I think I think that's one of the things like if we can move fast enough then that iterative process, like it's only going to get better rather than like, hey, we we test an airframe, the airframe's good, but we already bought the, you know, the internal guts of the avionics a decade ago when we were building the plane. So we have to keep those decade old avionics in it. And you're like, no, like years and we're turning stuff out and we're putting it out on the, you know, to fight. And now like keep up with that. Like that is a a serious problem set and it cracks me up OFP, you know, the operating system. So think like uh, iOS if for iPhone or anything, they're all different. And then every plane you hop into is going to have a different like uh, pilot vehicle interface or PVI. So it's like, well, this button does this and that button does that. And well, the, the C model community like kind of took over the Raptor initially. So then the Raptor was like all the same buttons as the C model, even though it's side stick and the 35 is like the F 16. You're like, Holy cow guys. Can't there be like a human factors like study and just like, this is the best way for a human to interface with an aircraft. No way. No money in it. (laughs) Vader for president. Preach it. Keep keep it up. I like it, dude. I like it a lot. I don't, well, it's, it's self, uh, you know, it's, it's helping me because I'm like, man, this is like, it could not be more different on how I interface with the C model from the F-16. So I'm like, well, at least I don't have bad habits. I just have no habits. <laughs> you um, just have no, yeah. That's right. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, I'll let you get going in a second. So uh, kind of parting shots on uh, CCAs uh, in training. Where do you see their their biggest use? Like, are these LFEs? Is this daily training? Like, where are they going to be uh, best used? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, if slash when we can take a uh, high performance unmanned fighter like Fury and move it into the training environment, it is going to be really good in an LFE. It'll be really good in day to day training because, you know, as, as you and I understand in, you know, for those who don't, when you walk into a fighter squadron, it probably is executing a training plan. There's a well thought out schedule of what you're going to be executing that week for those for that month for that quarter to overall satisfy your training requirements for the year. And as you go into beyond visual range engagements, so TI, maybe some ACM, depending on whether you're fit gen or fourth gen ACM, talk about fit gen ACM, which is principally BVR, turn to visual visual range, uh, and then tactical intercepts, and then OCA, so offensive counter, and the DCA, defensive counter mission sets, you get the, the quality and the quantity with an unmanned, uh, an unmanned fighter replicating that J20 on the other side. Uh, and then it could also be your striker, you know, could fulfill that striker role or whatnot, because when um, we need greater numbers, we need to be outnumbered and we need to be challenged in the RF spectrum with a with an adversary that replicates the tactics and replicates the trons as far as the electromagnetic spectrum coming off. Um, I don't think I don't think that it is that CCAs are going to be. Uh, in the next five to 10 years, suddenly doing unmanned BFM all over the place. I don't think that that, uh, I think there's there's really amazing stuff going on with the performers on the DARPA ACE program. I know those guys, amazing dudes doing amazing work. I think that is the, the BFM mission set from a perception decision execution standpoint. The perception is extremely challenging 
because your machine learning agent has to have an understanding of where the adversary is to then make a decision and then come in the aircraft to execute it. You and I just turn our heads. We just look and we just go, tally, tally, you know, at my six, because of course I'm terrible. So he's always at my six, <laughs> but, but you know, that machine learning agent may have to rely solely on the onboard sensors. And if it's outside the field regard of your radar or other sensor, it doesn't know where that aircraft is. So how's it going to make that decision? I think there, these are, these are silly, easily solved arguments, but they are they have they have got to be solved. And so I think BVR uh, is the is the first and best place uh, to earn that trust. This is maybe the most important thing that that is under discussed about DARPA ACE is also under discussed in the CCA world. We often talk about like, hey, what is this next unmanned fighter going to be? Hey, what's this next? What's this autonomy going to be? And as you and I understand, if we're going to put a new widget in the hands of the bros we have to build trust in it first before we use it appropriately. And so that's why you go through the testing process. That's why you iterate and develop and get that feedback. Because if we throw something over the fence and go, here you go, fellas, uh, figure it out. You know, it, it, and then it, and then it unfortunately maybe hits you or hits the ground or doesn't provide meaningful training, then you're, then nobody's ever going to want to use it again. It's going to start from a trust deficit. But if we yeah. do this right, then and it doesn't hit you. It doesn't hit the ground and it provides meaningful training for you on a random Tuesday sortie, then we're going to slowly start to build that trust. I'll just point back to something new that was put on the Viper, as you know way better than I do, is Auto GCAS. Auto GCAS is like the lowest level of automation. Like, I feel like I'm going to hit the ground, save myself. Yeah. It, it, and, and people still didn't trust it. And so it had to prove itself. It had to prove itself at home. And improve itself in some in some interesting situations. So guys are alive because that was that was built. But it, when it was when it was initially fielded, it didn't have trust. And so I think CCAs have to be iteratively fielded. That doesn't mean slow. Iterative should not be confused with slow, but deliberately put out in meaningful scenarios such as training in order for us to get after it. And actually, if you if you listen to the commander of air combat command, General Kelly, he says exact same things. And we need to get out to the bros at Nellis and have them kick kick it into the dirt and tell us where it's good and where it's bad. And we'll just iterate from there. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. Cause I think, you know, with humans, we just have a inherent and innate like belief that like, Hey, the other human's going to do their responsibility. And if they make a mistake, it's a mistake, you know, and, and we'll move on. But with a computer, it's like, Nope, don't trust it. You know, so if if yeah. uh, those things happen initially, yeah, I think that would be very bad for the for the bro level desire for it. Where if yeah, you do you do that iterative process and you bring it on board smartly, not trying to say like, hey, okay, you can BFM it now, and then it's some trash BFM or it's a trash <laughs> ACM adversary, and you're like, this is a waste of my time. Like I'm not using this. Right. But if you use it just to plus up long range numbers, I mean, because that's really what Red Air is. You're like, hey. 10 of my friends and I are going to go out and do air to air. Four of us are going to be good guys. The other six are going to be bad guys. And they're the, the other six are just there to give you training. If we can plus those numbers up and it's one, two guys on the other side providing you training, but there's six pieces of iron out there to, to shoot at. Yeah, I agree. That's going to be sweet. So, uh, well, Scar, thank you for uh, joining me on the show. Can you tell everybody your uh, way to contact you if they're trying to reach out, work with uh, Blue Force? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to uh, have some more chats about what we're talking about, I would love for people to give me some feedback. 
You can find me on, on LinkedIn, Andrew Van Timmeren. You can also find me, you know, via the Blue Force website, reach out via there. Uh, and I would love to chat. Vader, dude, this has been awesome. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you uh, also taking the time. And everybody, remember we talked about, give us five stars if you're down, tell your friends, uh, and then send us any questions or any any topics you want to hear about from the Kodiak Shack. We're always uh, we're always listening, info at KodiakShack.com. And then our website, KodiakShack.com, is where we're going to be, uh, where you can go check all that stuff out. So, Scar, thanks again. I appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.